high, have knowledge. This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and arrogant and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength. This is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Would you pray with me this morning as we begin? Father, I'm reminded this morning in your word that the question of who can understand his errors. Father, I pray that you would cleanse us from our secret faults. Pray that you would keep your servants also from presumptuous sins. Oh, Father, may they not have dominion over us. Pray, Father, that we would be found blameless, innocent of great transgression. Father, this morning I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight as your word goes forth. Oh, Father, thank you that you are our Lord, you are our strength. You are our Redeemer. Father, open our eyes to see. Open our eyes to hear the words of truth that you would desire for us to know this day from your word. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to preface our time in Psalm 73 by looking at just a a few scriptures to set the stage. The first one is in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy. 
So also, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish. And without spot. If you stay in the same vicinity and turn just to the left a bit in the book of James. James chapter 4, verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Turn to the book of Ephesians. The first three verses of Ephesians 2 speak to the way we once walked according to the course of this world. Among the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. If you go to chapter 4, beginning in verse 17 in Ephesians. Paul says this, I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. I have you turn to one other one in the book of First John. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes... That may be one to take note of in light of the text this morning. And the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Psalm 73 depicts a battle. A battle that you... And I, we face every day. And you're familiar with this battle, I'm sure. You've heard of this battle. This spiritual battle, oftentimes it gets called. You can fix your eyes upon Jesus. Or you can take your eyes off of Jesus and soak in the allurements of men. The text here in Psalm 73 has several parts to it. We're going to do our best as the Lord 
helps this morning to make our way through it. I believe in many ways the psalmist here, Asaph, is describing a battle. He's testifying to the battle that's real in his life. I think it's important up front to come to understand and to know that the battle that Asaph is speaking of is he's carried along by the Holy Spirit in writing. It's the same battle that you and I wage each day of our lives. You know, most of the passages that were read up front speak to the battle that's going on. And you know, a battle consists of at least two competing entities. Biblically speaking, I think it's important for us to understand this morning that the battle has been won. Amen? Battle's been won. I find it helpful right up front to begin with that word. If you are in Christ Jesus here today, I want you to know you have won the battle. You have won. Not anything of your own, but you have won in the sense that you are in Christ Jesus. Christ won. Christ accomplished. Christ finished. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? 1 Corinthians 15, 57. So, while you have won the battle, if you are in Christ, the Bible also speaks of work yet to be done. Right? There's work yet to be done. You're here. The Lord has kept you here for a reason. There's work to do. This battle may already be decided, but in the meantime, until Christ returns... There will continue to be daily skirmishes. The evil one, the world, the flesh serve as three opponents in this battle, do they not? Here's the good news. They're they're effective only for a limited time. The evil one still seeks in the time that he has left. He seeks to pick up a few remaining soldiers of Jesus Christ. You remember Ephesians 6, the flaming arrows? All the more reason we need to take up the, what? Shield of faith. Yes. Well, see, we need to understand that the battle, the battle that you've signed up for is a daily one. This battle that you've signed up for is not one that just takes effect on Sunday mornings or on Monday mornings or whatever day you want to choose, it's daily. There's not a day that goes by where you can be off duty. The battle armor must be put on. And this battle armor, in case you're wondering, has been well documented in Ephesians chapter 6, right? The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes befitting the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, In the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. As you consider the battle going on, perhaps it would be helpful to see this battle not simply as an important reminder from the Bible. Part of the problem, I believe, for those in Christ is that there has been this separation between seeing the battle on the pages of the written word. I see what it says. And seeing the battle in what I would call real time. You see, what I mean here is, you know about this armor that you're supposed to put on in Ephesians 6, many of you. 
if I were to ask, many of you could label and list all the pieces of the armor. And yet, knowing about it does not seem to impact your living. How is it that the battle described in this Bible that's been preserved for us, God's Word, a battle which is happening in real time in the lives of real people, how is it that it seems so far removed from the one professing the name of Jesus Christ? The Bible calls for the child of God to be battle ready. The Bible uses terms such as be watchful, be ready, be sober, be alert, beware for a reason. Perhaps a question right up front. Do you find yourself battle ready? Psalm 73 has been a joy to study this this week at But you know, it's also alerted me. It's alerted me to the battle readiness needed in my own walk, my own relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's something that's important for you to see contextually. Asaph was a believer in the Lord. He served alongside King David and even served in the temple during Solomon's day. And perhaps he and his sons were around to see the tragedy of the divided kingdom. What started out so well, not perfectly, mind you, with King David, But with David, this this whole idea continued through a portion of Solomon's reign. And then things started to go a different direction. Asaph had experienced great times of rejoicing in the Lord. He, along with Jeduthun and Heman, were appointed by David and his army captains to orchestrate the praise and the worship for the nation of Israel. 1 Chronicles 25. I encourage you to read it. I believe it's instructive context. For Psalm 73. Asaph was a masterful musician. He not only set some of David's psalms to music. But he penned a series of psalms himself. Psalm 50. Psalms 73 through 83. Several psalms in fact. Asaph had a gift of putting words to music. He spent his days overseeing and coordinating the instrumentals and vocals in the house of the Lord. He was what perhaps some today would refer to as a worship leader. He was very accustomed to leading in the songs, instructing in the songs of the Lord, in the house of the Lord. He was a man who valued and understood the need to praise and bless the Lord. And oh, that every child of God, we would learn something here from the life of Asaph, what it means to worship the Lord God, what it means to praise his name, to play skillfully for him, to sing unto the Lord. Psalm 73. It poses a question for the believer to consider. When you find yourself dwelling among the wicked, when things are not going so well, When, like Asaph, you find yourself serving under someone perhaps whose heart is far removed from the Lord. And we see that in the life of Solomon, what started out well didn't end so well. Question comes, are you going to throw in the towel and give up? Or are you going to endure and persevere in what the Lord has called you to? I praise the Lord for what 
The Spirit's given to us right here in Psalm 73. Because here we find a very real picture of the struggle, the battle before us. A real man wrestling with all that's going on around him. His, his mind, his heart are being buffeted. But notice why. Verse 3. He says, I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. These first three verses in the text define the battle. Define the battle. And I've just defined the battle here based on what I'm reading. One through and three is the... Operation Eye Gate, Eye Gate. That seems to be the battle here, in large part. Oh, there are other things perhaps that go into it, but really, as we read the text, as we look at the text, and I was thinking about the Eye Gate, and was reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. You might recall these words in the Sermon on the Mount. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, if your eye is clear, if it's healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if the eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You might recall the song, remember singing as a little child, oh be careful little eyes what you see. You see Matthew 6 says that your whole body will be full of light if your eye is good. Through the eye gate your mind is influenced. Through the eye gate, your heart is influenced. Through the eye gate, your senses are enlivened. Through your eye gate, your actions begin to take shape. I want you to notice that Asaph begins with a truth statement about who God is. He says, truly, God is good to Israel. To such as are pure in heart. Once again, I was reminded of the words of Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall what? They shall see God. See, the pure in heart are called, I believe they're careful to guard what comes in the eye gate. What they see impacts the heart. And the promise that's put forth by Jesus is that such purity of heart will translate in seeing God. So as Asaph defines the battle before him, he places, notice what he does here, look at this. He places God's goodness to Israel, verse 1. Alongside himself. Look at verse 2. But as for me. Truly God is good to Israel. But as for me. See Asaph remembers. What this was like. He says my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? Asaph records the reason in verse 3. Asaph doesn't hide the reason. Praise the Lord he doesn't hide the reason. I think that's instructive for it. It's just an instructive point here. To bring out. He doesn't hide his sin. Verse 3. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Operation Eyegate. You see, Asaph became envious of the boastful when. When. At what point in time did he become envious? When he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph was envious. As I was thinking about that, I was reminded of Galatians chapter 5 and 19 through 21, which has a list. The works of the flesh. Remember that list? It says they're evident, which are, and it begins with adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, goes on and says envy, 
Murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Envy makes the list of the works of the flesh. It's one of many on the list. And the items on that list in Galatians 5, 19 through 21 are contrasted with the list in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. Is there not a battle being waged here, church? Here's a man of God who saw the prosperity of the wicked. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Asaph was a regular in the house of the Lord. He spent his time largely in praising the Lord, preparing to worship, leading his sons and the brethren and making music to the Lord in the house of the Lord. And yet even in that context, you read that he was envious of the boastful when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. His eyes, his eyes caught enough of it. Perhaps it wasn't all that much. But the text leads me to believe that what he saw was sufficient for the buffeting. What he saw served as the catalyst for his mind and his heart to turn from the things of God. Church, I believe there's a a warning label that could be attached to this. Danger. Danger. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, church. As the song says, look full in his wonderful face. Because see, as we do that, The rest of that song is also true. The things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Verses 1, 2, and 3 define the battle. They describe for Asaph what happened and why. But let me ask, what about you? More specifically, what about your eye gate? What's coming in? You see, this text is profitable not just for instruction about the time of Asaph, but this text is profitable for your soul as well. Do not think for a moment those movies that you watch, those books that you read, the large majority of content on the internet. Do not think that this is all neutral content. I'd like to maybe press this one for just a moment. Some of you perhaps are so glued to your iPhones, iPods, i, whatever. Your eye gate is flooded with all kinds of images all the time. You have arrived, some of you, at the place of rationalization. You've been building a case as to why you need that eye. Gadget. (laughs) Perhaps some of you, it's movie watching. What's coming in the eye gate is influence on the whole body, church. Take heed to guard what comes in through the eye gate. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to be reminded that there is a battle going on. As a soldier in the battle, be reminded that there... There are schemes. Why would you willingly subject yourself to the schemes of the evil one? Why would you spend any time hanging out in enemy territory? The Bible says flee youthful lusts. 
Make no provisions for the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be useful to the master. Pursue righteousness, faith, love with those who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. So he defines the battle. But we see in 4 through 12, there's some details of the battle. What is it that Asaph observed? You see the boastful and the wicked that are described in verse 3. What did Asaph recognize about their lives? 4 through 12 details the battle that's being waged by Asaph, describing the lives of the boastful, describing the lives of the wicked. Let me just give you the list. Here's a list. Verse 4. There are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. You see, he came to see and understand and recognize that, that these folks, they don't realize, they don't see the need for making any preparations for death. Death didn't seem to bother them. Didn't seem to bother them. Little do they know what lies beyond the grave. Outward, they, they live a fearful life, fearless life. Perhaps they go to their death without an outward expression of concern. But if you've ever been to a funeral where one does not know and has not had a relationship with Jesus Christ, you know what I'm talking about. That funeral is lifeless. Tragic. He also observes, verse 5, they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued. You know, as I was thinking about the observation of them not being in trouble, I was contrasting that with those who are disciplined for some reason, perhaps by the Lord, or those who are plagued, contrasting that with a trial, a particular trial uh, that someone in the Lord may be going through. The observation here is that these folks, they're not in trouble. They're not plagued. Things seem to be going pretty well for these folks. Look at verse 6. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. You see, these folks seek their own pleasures. Me is all they see. You know, they, they would be ones that would change the, the wording of the song, I exalt thee, to I exalt me. They're about me. That's what they're about. In fact, the next part of that ties right into it. Violence covers them like a garment. Whatever it takes to get what I want. That's the way these folks operate. Verse 7. Their eyes bulge with abundance. Isn't that a... Great descriptor. They have more than heart could wish. These boastful and wicked folks described here, they're never satisfied with what they have. Never satisfied. Never content. Verse 8, they scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. See, it doesn't bother them that someone is being oppressed. The weak and the poor, they're, they're just simply targets. And they willfully pursue them to get what they can. The text says they speak loftily. Their words manifest the pride within them. They converse about things pertaining to them. Not concerned about things of interest to other people. You ever had a conversation with someone 
And it doesn't matter really what the subject matter is initially. The subject matter always seems to go back to them. It's hard to spend time with people that like to talk. Just all they talk about is themselves. This group of people, one of the descriptors is just that. They're about themselves. They speak loftily. They speak about all these things they can do. Verse 9, they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Not only are they lofty in their speech, they profane the name of the Lord and they set themselves against God. Church, do not with your lips, and your lips are an extension of what's in your heart. (laughs) Do not with your lips set yourself against the Lord God. That is not a good place to be. These folks were doing just that. Their speech is characterized as what James 3 refers to as unbridled, a ship without a rudder. (laughs) Consider the phrase, their tongue walks through the earth. These people have no shame in the words that they use. They show no discernment, they show no wisdom in what comes out. Profanity is commonplace. Don't see anything wrong with how they speak, nor do they welcome anyone who tries to speak a word about their speech. Freedom of speech, they cry. Entitlement. Right? You've heard it. Don't tell me what to say. Look at verse 10. Add to the list. His people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. This group of people, they they excel in draining others. They excel in draining others. In fact, turn to Psalm 74, which is also a psalm of Asaph. And I'd just like to begin, just just look at some of these words here. Oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Lift up your feet, to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. Do you think Asaph was able to see some things? And I believe the characteristics, the traits that he has here in verses 4 through 12, they, they, they come out of a life that's been able to see some pictures of this. What kind of people these, these, these folks are. They have no concern of the things of God. They excel in draining others. Verse 11. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? They mock God's presence with with his people. You see, in the midst of oppression, the wicked and boastful place the name of God. Right, they, They put him right in the face of the believer, questioning his presence with them in the midst of their adversity. You're going through adversity. You're going through suffering. You're going through hard times. God doesn't know anything about that. 
they say. And yet if we understand and truly hold to and trust in what the word says, we understand that those who are godly are going to go through times of suffering in this life. We're going to go through trials. We're going to go through persecutions. That's part of the curriculum for those who are in Christ Jesus. And these folks want to mock God and his presence with his people. How does God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? You see, they use God as a, as a tool of provocation with the people of Israel. God, really? You believe he's going to take care of you in the midst of all this? Where is he? Look at verse 12. Behold, these are the ungodly. Always at ease. You see, what Asaph saw was outward. His gaze was only on the outside, what it would appear to be. The ungodly may very well appear at ease, but if they are ungodly by definition, they have no thought of God. They have no thought of pleasing God, of God's glory. Proverbs 15, 11 says, Hell and destruction are before the Lord, so how much more the hearts of the sons of men. Or Proverbs 16, 5, everyone proud in heart, which describes this group of people. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. The end of verse 12 is the last of the list. They increase in riches. They increase in riches, not by hard work, but by plundering, by oppressing, by stealing, by murdering. Behold, these are the ungodly, as though he's presenting. These are the ungodly. Here it is. Here's the list. And the question comes. And these are the people Asaph envied? No wonder this is deemed a work of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. <laughs> Only the flesh, church, would cater to such a list of ungodliness. The battle is defined in 1, 2, and 3, and details from the battle are listed in 4 through 12. Where does Asaph go from here? Look at 13 through 16. We see the impact of the battle. I want you to notice that the text in these few verses is first person. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, washed my hands in innocent. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. You see, the impact of this battle is manifested in the life of Asaph. Here's how it impacted him. You see, his thoughts upon seeing the prosperity of the wicked turned to questioning, doubting, wondering, have, have I gone about all this purity of heart for no reason? Have any of you ever asked that question? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I seeking the Lord? Why do I make it a habit to get up every morning and read the Bible? Why do I spend time in prayer? Why do I take time to come to the Lord's house on a Sunday morning? Have you ever asked any of those questions? Is it worth it all? That's what I'm hearing from Asaph. He was at a point where, as he was being buffeted in his mind, his heart, he's asking some of these questions. He's seeing the prosperity of the wicked around him, and he's saying to himself, I don't know if it's worth it all to do what I'm doing. Pursuing holiness, righteousness, 
Is it worth it? Verse 14, I believe is connected back to verse 5, which says they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. You see, Asaph, Asaph sees his own situation. He sees that he is in the midst of oppression, and he's not seeing God show, here, here it is, he's not seeing God show up to his liking. How often have you done the very same thing? Instead of trusting in God through the trial or period of suffering, you just want it to go all away. It's, I believe it's somewhat in our human nature that we just desire it to go away. But instead of waiting upon the Lord, you want to call the shots. You want to direct God to what he needs to be doing. Romans 9.20 says, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? You see, it looks appealing perhaps to walk down the path of the wicked. The text in verse 2 says that Asaph was envious of the boastful and light of the prosperity of the wicked. Sin is appealing. It's attractive. It looks good to the eye. But it sells you a lie. It makes promises it can never keep. Ask Eve. Remember what she saw? Look good, pleasing to the eye. Ask David. Ask Solomon. Look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I will speak that, like the wicked in verses 8 and 9. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. Now, right here, Asaph is, as he's Considering all of this in his mind, and he's, he's put it forth for us to read, kind of this chronicling the, the, the battle that's going on. I believe he's turning a corner. And the question comes, what's at stake here in the battle? Asaph, we got to remember, Asaph was a leader in the house of the Lord. His four sons served under him, and, and he served under the authority of the king. I didn't make that up. That's in First Chronicles chapter 25. Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman all served under the authority of the king. Asaph was a man under authority. He realized the impact of walking with the wicked. He realizes that to walk in their way, he would be untrue to the generation of God's children. Interesting. Untrue is the word he uses. How well do you think it would go over? If Asaph patterned his life according to the ungodly and then stepped in the house of the Lord with his sons watching, with his sons by his side, trying to lead the praise and worship of the Lord. Anything wrong with that picture? You see the battle here? And the question comes back to you. You're here today. But have you been walking as the Gentiles walk, as we read earlier, in the futility of your mind? 
remember that you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and you've been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. You see, Asaph came to realize the mixed message he would be sending to those around him if he exchanged the truth of God for a lie. In your life, are there things going on that are sending mixed messages to those in your home? You have children and you say that you love them, but spend time doing other things. You have a wife and you say that you love her, but you spend all your days consumed in doing your own things. Take note of what the text says in verse 15. Your mixed messages impact the children of God. See, the impact in the battle is not contained to those in your home. It extends to those in the church. Do you see this? Not just those in your household. Church family. Impacts everyone. We're in it together, aren't we? In the body, Ephesians 4 speaks about that. Connectedness. Look at 16 and 17. Asaph submits a solution for the battle he's in. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. It was troublesome to my eyes, literally. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. So I believe verse 17 here, he puts forth a solution, a solution for the battle that he's in. The sanctuary of God. You know, for Asaph, again, context is is large here in what we're speaking of. Asaph was speaking about, there's a real place, the sanctuary of God. For Asaph, it was a real place. He spent a good deal of his time in the sanctuary of God. He worked in the temple of God as a musician. He led the people in songs of praise and worship. But the sanctuary of God, can it also be a real place for you? You see, understanding came when he went into the sanctuary of God. There's two things that come to mind here. Contextually, Asaph led the people in worship in song. And I find it a great delight to worship the Lord in song. Have you ever lifted your voice to the Lord in song and afterwards walked away rejoicing in the Lord? I believe he's speaking to the important aspect of worship in our lives. What we were made for. To give God glory. To worship him. To exalt his name. It's hard to walk contrary to the Lord when you have genuinely entered into his presence in worship. I also think of the sanctuary of God as the place where one might come to worship. And understanding comes. He says here in the text, until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. I believe in many ways understanding comes as the word goes forth. There are some things you cannot understand apart from the counsel of the word. And coming into the house of God each week, the sanctuary of God each week. Lord willing, you hear God's truth. You hear God's perspective. You hear God's thoughts on how you need to be walking. The sanctuary of God. I want you to notice that he understood their end once he went into the sanctuary of God. Why would it be so important? Ask the question. Why so important that he understand their end? 
I believe this is instructive for you. If you're envious of the boastful and desire to taste and see the ways of the ungodly, it might be a good idea to see what the Bible has to say about their end. Huh? It's sort of like in decision-making. We make decisions all the time. But as we think about the decisions that we're going to make, do we oftentimes think about down the road where this particular decision might lead? What is it that if I make this decision here right now, what is this going to lead to, perhaps, down the road? Thinking about the end. Where is this current path headed? You see, Asaph found the solution to the battle upon coming into the sanctuary of God. 18, 19, and 20 then speak to what Asaph came to understand of their end. Look at 18, 19, and 20. Here's what he came to understand right here in these three verses. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. What is that end that he came to understand? Judgment. Judgment awaits. You know, I was listening to a message this week, not on Psalm 73, it was actually in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, I was listening to a message this week. And in the context of the message, the speaker actually brought up, was talking about judgment. And near the end of the message, these were the words that he spoke regarding judgment. I I find it helpful in light of what we were talking about here with judgment. He says this about judgment. He says the judgment of God is absolutely fearful, absolutely fair, and absolutely final. The judgment of God is absolutely fearful, (laughs) absolutely fair, and absolutely final. Christ, you see, is coming back, church. His judgments are righteous, and I was reminded of John's gospel. In chapter 12, 46, 48, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. There's judgment in the battle. When he went into the sanctuary, Asaph was able to understand their end. He was able to see that it was God who set them in slippery places. It was God who's going to cast them down to destruction. You see, sometimes we fail to remember that the same God who puts us and places us in the path of a trial is the same God who puts and places some of these folks in a slippery place. And in our heart and our mind, sometimes we get this idea that they've got things better. They've got it all together. Asaph came to understand something quite differently here. We see in 21 through 24, 
Asaph is, is recounting the battle. And he does two things right here that I believe are very significant, very important. He says, thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Let's pause right there. As he's recounting the battle. You see, once Asaph was brought to understand the end of the boastful and the wicked, he does two things, according to the text. The first thing he does is he confesses his own sin in walking this way. I was so ignorant and foolish. But I want you to notice what else he does in 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterward, receive me to glory. I believe some of you need to hear these verses this morning. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Your feet have nearly slipped. You're at a point nearly stumbling. Perhaps you're here today and you find yourself delighting in some sin that has entangled you. Confess the sin that so easily entangles and know that as a child of God, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans Chapter 8, verse 1 says. As the battle goes forward, I believe it's important to hold those verses in mind. Recognize your sin before God. Confess it. The Bible says He is faithful. He is a faithful God. He will forgive you your sins. And He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, verse 9 says. John's gospel, Jesus says that no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. You are secure in the hand of the Lord. Psalm 50, which is actually one of the psalms written by Asaph. Psalm 50, verse 15, says, Call upon me, the Lord here, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. You see, there's... There's this idea or thought, perhaps, that the weight of one's sin trumps what God might think about me. Can, can, I, just, can I just point that out? Let's just blow it out of the water. It's not true. The Lord Jesus Christ died for your sin. All of it. Your sin, and the words that I just spoke, it's not a ticket for you, as Romans 6 would say, to keep on sinning. It should be good news for you, hope for you, to hold on to. That in the midst of those times when sin does entangle you, that you can know with certainty, that you can be assured of your relationship with Jesus Christ, You can be assured that what this Bible says, that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Walk in that truth, church. When you sin, do what the Bible speaks of. Confess it. 
He is a faithful God and He will cleanse you from your unrighteousness. Walk in the truth. Don't wallow. Don't wallow in the weight of sin and see sin as, oh, this is so overwhelming and oh, God can't. That is not the truth of the word. Look to God. Trust in him. In fact, that's where he's going to end this as we keep going and we finish up. You see, Asaph, having understood their end, having confessed his own sin and come to the realization of the loving God that he serves, I want you to look at how he concludes this psalm. And as you think about the battle, what is it that's needed in the battle? What is it that you need as you fight the daily battle before you? Here's what you need. Here's what I need. Strength. I need strength. These last few verses provide strength in the midst of the battle. Strength. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is none upon earth that I desire besides you. You see, there was a time when Asaph was envious of the boastful, when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's concluding this, kind of sharing a testimony of the battle in his own life. And he's come to the understanding and to the realization, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides in heaven, there's none on earth that I desire besides you. And he says, my flesh and my heart may fail. Note that, you might underline that. Because your flesh and your heart may fail, time or two. But God, I know we talked about some of those but God phrases in the scripture. Here's another one. But God is the strength. God is the rock of my heart. He's my portion forever. Forever. Church, this is wonderful news. Asaph resolves to spend his days for the Lord. But but he also recognizes the frailty of his frame. My flesh and my heart fail. See, the resolve comes in knowing that God is the strength of his heart and his portion forever. And to each of you here today, I ask, is God the strength of your heart? It's truly much more than a yes or no. There are some other things that ought to accompany answering that question. When your flesh and heart fail, is he still going to be your strength? Are you turning to someone or something else when your flesh and heart fail? Asaph is submitting his life for examination. He doesn't hide the reality of his battle with sin. Are you? Asaph testifies freely of the battle going on within him and all around him. His testimony is that God is the strength of his heart, his portion forever. Verse 27 alludes back to those boastful and wicked. It's sort of like a confirmation, verse 27. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, all those who are unfaithful to you. And then you get to verse 28. But it is good for me to draw near to God. 
I have put my trust in the Lord God. That I may declare all your works. You see, putting your trust in the Lord God is not something to, to do just to be able to declare, I've put my trust in the Lord God. You see, there seems to be a purpose attached to Asaph saying, I've put my trust in the Lord God. I've put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare your works. That I might do something beneficial for you and your kingdom. It's good for me to draw near to God. Someone who has, in verse 25 and 26, recognizes that his flesh and heart fail, but comes back and declares that God is the strength of his heart. It's someone who is holding on, who's trusting in the Lord. His life might not be a wonderful, grand picture of someone living life on the mountaintop. In fact, I would say for many of us, that's not the way we live anyway. Is life to be lived on the mountaintop? Is that the purpose? I believe the testimony of Asaph would tell us otherwise. It's good for me to draw near to God. I'd like to read two supplemental passages and then we're going to we're going to pray. I was reminded here of James. Chapter 4. Beginning in verse 6. He gives more grace. Therefore he says God resists the proud. But gives grace to the humble. Therefore. Submit to God. Submit to God. Don't fight against him. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. Here it is. Asaph said, it, it's good for me to draw near to God. Church, here's, here's some good news why it's Important to draw near to God. The promise here is he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Oh, let's understand, this is not in vain. The thoughts that Asaph had, is it all worth it? Yes, it is. I want to make that very clear this morning. It is worth it. He is our great treasure that we seek. He is the pearl of great price. He is the one that we are to be seeking, searching, hungering, and thirsting for in this life as long as we have breath. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. He's the one who gives us strength in this battle, church. I believe Scripture would point us to one other verse in particular as we close in Philippians. Familiar verse. You might not think you can do it. 
You might think the situation you're in is impossible. Don't see a way out. Paul says in 4.13, I can do all things. Through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Recognize, church, the battle that you're in each day. I praise the Lord for the testimony of Asaph. Praise the Lord for the word he's put forth here as he's been given word by the Holy Spirit to speak here in Psalm 73. The battle that you and I are waging in order to fight this battle, we need to be equipped. If we have the Spirit of Christ in us, we are fully equipped for godliness and life. 2 Peter chapter 1 says. He's given to us the word, the sword of the Spirit, our offensive weapon in the battle and a defensive weapon. Let's be faithful to use it. Let's also be reminded in the words of Psalm 73. My flesh and my heart may fail. But can you say that God is the strength of your heart? Let's pray. Father, thank you for serving as the strength of our heart. Thank you for opening our eyes that we can see. Thank you for opening our ears to hear. Father, this gospel, this good news that you've given to us, May we cherish it. May we treasure it. May we desire to walk in this way. Oh, Father, I pray that we would not desire to walk in this other path. I pray that we would not desire to jump the fence and go to a a greener pasture, so to speak. Oh, Father, there is no greener pasture. I pray that we would come to understand and realize the best place for us to be is in your hand. The best place for us to be is to draw near to you. For it is there that you draw near to us. Thank you for that wonderful promise. May we, like Asaph, deal with the sin that so easily entangles us. May we confess it, understanding that you are a faithful God, that you have forgiven us our sin through Jesus Christ and that you cleanse us. Oh, Father, thank you. This day I pray we would walk in the truth that you've given to us in your word. I pray that you speak to our hearts. I pray that you would remind us of these important truths. I pray that in the battle that gets waged, Lord, I pray for each one here that there would be a battle readiness each day they would understand there's a battle going on. Pray we would take up that armor 
that we would faithfully live our lives for you, that we would come to see in an increasing measure that you're worth it all. As the fishermen dropped their nets and left their fathers in the boat, they forsook it all. They got up and they followed Jesus. Lord, I pray we would do the same, that we would follow you in this life that you've given to us, unreserved, wholeheartedly, with an undivided heart, we would walk in your ways and we would do it in your strength. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.